For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. I was going to tell you you could be seated, but you went ahead and did it anyway, so good for you. You don't need me. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave, uh, Dave Hahn. I'm uh, privileged and really excited to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. If you haven't been here, over the last three weeks, we've been looking at some of the foundational things that we as Christ's church believe and practice. Now, the church word for that is doctrine. So we've been looking at doctrine. We've been looking at what it is that we believe and what it is that we practice. So we've tried to be clear about the things that we believe are issues of ultimate importance as the church and really distinguish those things from the convictions that we personally hold as a body of believers to be able to say, here's God's word and here's how we're practicing it as we understand it, as we believe God's spirit leading us in it. And these are things that other godly, well-intentioned brothers and sisters in Christ may not agree with us on. We may not all agree on things, perhaps even people in this room, and that is okay. We believe that there are specifics around doctrines within the church that are not necessarily salvific in nature, but there are also places where we can be charitable and trust God's spirit to guide us and to lead us. As the church of Jesus Christ, we should hold fast to the clear teachings of Scripture and those things that the church has always believed and agreed upon. But as the church, we should also extend liberty and grace in those areas where the Bible isn't as explicit, where brothers and sisters may very well disagree. Last week, we looked at one such doctrine where the observance itself is foundational, but where the specificities allow freedom to choose. We asked, what is baptism? First, we talked about that it is an act of obedience to Christ. He himself was baptized by John and commanded that all who believe in him should follow his example. Not only being baptized themselves, but then baptizing others. We call that part of the Great Commission. And baptism is also an identification with Christ's death and with his resurrection. We talked about the idea that in baptism you are identifying with his death by going under the water and identifying with his resurrection by being raised out of the water. That's the picture, that we have been buried with him and we have been raised with him. It is also a declaration to others that we are in Christ and desire to follow him evermore through our identification with his death and his resurrection. And while all Christian churches would see baptism as essential, we differ in how we baptize, and we differ in when we baptize. Today, we're looking at a similar doctrine of the Christian church that is 
like baptism in that its observance is foundational, but its practice varies. Today we are asking the question, what is communion? So growing up, I spent time in several churches and denominations, Greek Orthodox, Catholic for a spell, Lutheran, and then the last 20 years or so non-denominational. For a variety of reasons, I'm a mutt as it relates to church going. And if you haven't been into all those churches, I can assure you that they all talk about and handle communion differently. Some churches only allow members to partake. Some allow anyone who believes to partake. Some churches put the bread into the cup with the wine and then they spoon it out, wiping off the spoon or wiping off the cup beforehand. My guess is that that practice is few and far between as we get more germaphobic. Some distribute the bread and the cup independently, and some put it all together in this neat little package where you rip off the top and it's all kind of together. Some churches have wafers, some have bread. Some of the bread is unleavened, meaning it doesn't have yeast, and some of it does have yeast. Some of the bread is baked in a special oven, and some of it is bought at Sendix. (laughs) Or pick and save, or your bakery of your choosing. Some churches use wine, others choose ju- use juice, and some give options for both. Some churches have you come to the front, and some have you remain seated as the elements are passed around. Some churches believe that the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ is present in the bread and in the cup, and others believe that the bread and the cup are symbolic. And very likely, the differences do not end there. Even the name that we give to the sacrament can differ. Most often, I think, it's referred to as the Lord's Supper, but some churches call it the Eucharist. Eucharist, by the way, is a Greek word which means giving thanks. And beginning in verse 23 of today's passage, we get a glimpse as to where these alternate names for communion may have come from. So verse 23 reads, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, Lord's Supper. And when he had given thanks, Eucharist, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we talked about, anybody with a background in church is familiar with the passage that Roger read for us today? They are considered the words of institution when communion is observed. But what we might not be familiar with or spend time considering when we observe communion is the reason that Jesus and his disciples first gathered in the upper room. According to verse 23, the gathering occurred on the night when Jesus was betrayed. This is the evening prior to his death, a death put forth not by foreign hands, but by his own, through betrayal. A betrayal that was mere hours away, and Jesus knew it. And the backdrop of this meal is the celebration of the Jewish Passover. Now, Passover is a celebration and remembrance of Israel's deliverance from captivity and slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. And it is celebrated still to this day. 
And Moses and Aaron were sent by God to deliver his people from the bondage they had been in for 430 years. Moses went to Pharaoh and said on behalf of God, let my people go that they may worship me. Over and over again, he made that declaration to Pharaoh. And due to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God brought 10 plagues upon Egypt, a plague after each refusal to let the people of Israel go. Verse 4 of Exodus 11 actually gives us the details of this final plague as Moses spoke to the elders of Israel. It reads, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So in the very next chapter of Exodus, God gave instructions to Moses to give to the people of Israel, surrounding what it is that they ought do in light of what he was about to do. These are instructions that we now call pieces of the Passover. At a certain time of year, on the 10th day of the month, each household is to select a lamb. One year old and without blemish. And four days later, the lamb is to be sacrificed and none of its bones are to be broken. Its blood was to be taken and put on the door frames of the house with hyssop branches. Picking up in verse 23 of Exodus 12, we read, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. And that very night, as God promised, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. And each house where the blood of the lamb was found on the doorposts was passed over. And Pharaoh let the Israelites go. So this is what Jesus, his disciples, and all of Israel were observing and celebrating on the night of what we call the Last Supper. God having spared their lives and freeing them from the slavery that they had been in for 430 years. So considering all of that as a backdrop, what then is communion? And why do we observe it? So today we're going to look at four things that this sacrament declares, that it commands, and that it signifies for you and I. First, communion is a declaration that Jesus is our true Passover lamb. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of 
of the world. The Lamb of God is a man. Jesus came to take away sin, a claim that could not be made by anyone or anything else, including every other Passover lamb before him. See, the Bible makes clear to us that Jesus is the center point of all things in heaven and on earth. Everything prior to his life on earth points to his coming, who he would be, and what he would accomplish And everything after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension points back to his having come and his imminent return. Therefore, it should not surprise us when we see the shadow of Jesus in the sacraments and the observances and the celebrations of the Old Testament. There are testimonials all over YouTube of Jewish folks who have come to know Christ And what grabs them is them seeing Jesus in their Bible. How did Jesus get into my Bible? Well, he was always there. There are things that preceded Jesus' earthly life that pointed us, that would point us to him. And there are things like Passover and the Passover lamb that would shine a spotlight on who he is and what it was that he was going to do. The connections between the Passover festival and the last week of Christ's life on earth are incredible. So let's look at a few of them. During Passover, it was on the 10th day of the month that the Passover lamb was selected. This is called Lamb Selection Day. And four days later, that lamb was to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Jesus entered Jerusalem during Passover on this very day day. Lamb selection day is when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the day that we otherwise call Palm Sunday. Jesus rode a donkey through the sheep's gate into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us. And like a Passover lamb, Jesus was inspected and he was chosen by the people heralding him as the chosen Messiah, one to rescue them as they saw it from their political foes. But Jesus didn't come to be a militaristic king. He is a true king, the true king, but of a different kingdom, of God's kingdom. And Jesus didn't come to free them or you and I from our political struggles or our earthly woes. He came to free us and rescue us and them from sin and its consequence of death. And as in all other previous Passovers, four days later, from the day that he came into Jerusalem, the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed on a cross for our sins and for all time. Then, according to tradition, at 3 p.m. on the day of the Passover sacrifice, the priest would blow a shofar. This is a ram's horn. The idea behind that shofar blow was to cause those who heard it to recognize and contemplate their sin because the lamb, the Passover lamb, had been sacrificed. And in the same way, Jesus, at 3 p.m. on the day of the Passover sacrifice, cried out from the cross, it is finished. Like the sound of a shofar, his voice cried out, 
He then bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Having paid the full penalty of sin for all of those who would believe. But before Jesus died, John 19 tells us that he said from the cross, I am thirsty. Verse 29 of John 19 reads, A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. A stalk of a hyssop plant. Does that sound familiar? On the night of the first Passover, Moses' instructions to the elders of Israel was the following. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. See, on the night of the first Passover, hyssop was used to cover the doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And on the cross, hyssop was used to give drink to the true Passover lamb as his blood was shed for our sins. Finally, according to Exodus 12, the Passover lamb was not to have any of its bones broken. Oftentimes we speak of Jesus' crucifixion in terms of his body being broken. And in some sense, due to the physical agony of the cross and all that he endured prior to it, his body was broken. But we really need to be careful what we say when we say that. And we need to be sure of what we mean. Because Jesus, like every Passover lamb before him, had no broken bones. Not even in and through the tremendous beating he took and the death that he suffered. To be crucified and to have no broken bones was extremely unusual. You see, it wasn't through the loss of blood that somebody died from crucifixion. It was asphyxiation. You spend enough time with your arms stretched out, it's difficult to get air into your lungs. And after hanging there, with your feet being supported by a post underneath, you'd have to push yourself up to get air back into your lungs. And as the blood drained from you, and as your strength was drained, it was more and more difficult to get air back into your lungs. And eventually, you would suffocate. And usually it took days before that would happen, before crucifixion would finally kill someone. But the timing of Jesus' crucifixion, along with the two criminals beside him, was of concern. Listen to John 19. Beginning in verse 31, it reads, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. 
See, both Exodus 12 and Psalm 34 would prophesy that the bones of Jesus, our Messiah, and the true Passover lamb would not be broken. The Apostle John watched these things unfold. He wrote them down and he testified so that we would believe. And his testimony to us is this. Yes, Jesus' body was given, but his bones were not broken. Because Jesus is the one that the prophets wrote about. He is Messiah. He is Passover lamb. The second reason for communion is that it signifies our union with Christ and with each other. See, to commune with someone means that there exists a deep relationship and an abiding unity. But that was not the case for a time in the church of Corinth, just like it is with us. The instructions that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 were, in part, to address the manner in which the church was living and how they observed communion. There was idolatry, there was drunkenness, there was gluttony and division, even at the Lord's table. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, is what Paul said. What you're doing has nothing to do with what Jesus commanded us to do and how he commanded us to do it. My friends, where there is an exaltation of self, where we mistreat this table, maybe in what we idolize, in treating this table as some kind of snack or some place to get our thirst quenched, in treating other brothers and sisters as though they are less than we and we ought to precede them, or any other heart attitude or behavior that neglects to magnify our union with Christ and with one another, through his body given and through his blood shed, we do not reflect what Christ has commanded and established the night before his death. So we need to enter it with consideration and examination. Communion, my friends, is a declaration that we are one body, unified with Christ through faith and unified with one another by his spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul asks, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one bread. A disciple of Jesus Christ does not go it alone. We need to be part of a local body of believers. We need to be in deep, abiding, gospel-centered community. Yes, on Sundays, but not only on Sunday, because we are one body. So are those things true of you? The third reason for communion is to remember and to proclaim Jesus' death. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So we remember his body given in the bread. Originally, unleavened bread was used and still can be used, as we talked about, to represent his body. Unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, is significant for two reasons. First, during the first Passover in Egypt, the Israelites had no time 
to add leaven to their bread. It takes time to cause bread to rise, right? And when given the option of being set free after 400 years or having super fluffy bread, you choose freedom every single time. The second reason for unleavened bread is that yeast is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for sin, as a metaphor for rebellion. Jesus himself, my friends, was without sin. And a life free of sin is what all of God's children, you and I, are called to by his power. So there's the significance of the unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Second, we remember his blood shed through the cup. See, cups in Scripture are often symbolic. In the Bible, we see cups of fury and judgment and trembling and horror and desolation. And in Psalm 116, we see the cup of salvation. See, cups could symbolize both wrath and redemption, judgment and blessing. Jesus referred to the cup at this Passover, though, his supper, as one of a new covenant made in his blood. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, would foretell of the day when God would establish a new covenant unlike all others before it. Verse 31 reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. In the new covenant, God's law is written on the hearts of man. In the new covenant, all can know him, from the least to the greatest. And in the new covenant, sins are taken away and remembered no more through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant that God spoke of, having been established in Jesus' blood, represented in the cup of communion. You aren't just holding a cup. It is by Jesus' blood applied to the doorposts of our lives that we are spared the fate of God's enemies. It is by Jesus' blood applied to our lives that the last and the final judgment passes over us. Do you recognize that as followers of Christ, your day of judgment is in the past? You have been judged completely, found guilty, and Christ took the punishment. There is no more judgment for you. He himself stood in our place, judged for our sins once for all, so that we would be set free from the bondage of sin and the punishment of death. Not set free from from Egypt, Not set free necessarily from our earthly woes, but from the thing that afflicts us most. That we would enter into his promised land. 
In, it is his death on our behalf that we must remember, my friends, and we must proclaim it. See, we owed a debt that we could not pay, and Jesus owed, paid a debt that he did not owe. And there is no sin more powerful than the precious body and blood of Jesus. And so we remember and we proclaim the forgiveness we have received in Christ. That it is available to all who would come to Christ by grace, through faith, just the way that we first came and we still come. See, we're commanded to remember all throughout Scripture, not just in communion, because we easily forget. Friends, God in Christ hasn't just taken away our sin, although that would be enough. But he also wants to remove our guilt and our shame. And there is no doubt that in a room this size, there are people who are struggling with guilt and shame for sins that have already been forgiven. It's guilt and shame that we tend to hang on to. It is guilt and shame that Satan loves to stir up in us through self-condemnation. Because knowing that we have been forgiven and made right with God in Christ is essential to the life of a believer. It affects how we think and relate to God, how we think and relate to ourselves, and how we think and relate to others. So when we struggle to believe that we have been forgiven or struggle to forgive others, we need to be reminded of the cross of Christ that says, I forgave it all 2,000 years ago. And because I forgave you, you can and you need to forgive others. In our hours of great darkness, in our hours of self-reliance and pride, we need to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We need communion. As we discussed earlier, some consider these elements of communion, his body and his blood, to be symbolic. And others believe that they are much more than that. But regardless of where we find ourselves personally on that spectrum, I think we can all agree on this. It is that Jesus is the very food and the very drink that our souls most need. It is he that the elements of communion signify. It is Christ himself through the power of the Spirit that we are to feed upon and drink deeply of. Jesus himself, while on earth, knew that to only consume that which is physical would leave us hungry and thirsty for more. Nothing else would satisfy. But it is not so with him. In John 4, Jesus met with a Samaritan woman while his disciples went to buy food, the passages say. And in returning with the food they bought, the disciples said, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is the body and is the food of which we eat and his blood is that of which we drink. The final reason for our taking of communion is a forward look to Jesus' second coming. Verse 26 says, We proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. That's what we're doing when we take communion. In the Gospels of Luke and Matthew and Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Communion, friends, is not only a time of reflection, identification, and unification, but it is also a time of anticipation and celebration. Anticipating and celebrating the fact that Jesus will come again to gather those who belong to him. Because Jesus has been raised, he has ascended. And when he ascended, he promised that he would come again. Even Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and return are woven into Passover. Listen, as part of the Passover festival on Friday evening, participants would come, would take some of the grain of their harvest, what was called the first fruits, and offer them as a sacrifice at the temple, trusting God to provide what they needed most. That's what sacrifice is about. And in the same way, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of those raised from the dead. As the grains from the first fruits were offered on Friday evening at the Passover, Jesus' body was going into the ground, proverbially speaking, dead. He was going into a stone cave. And he was going in there dead, but not for long. Not for long. Jesus told his disciples in John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' dead body went into the earth so that the fruit of eternal life might be birthed in him for all who believe. In his resurrection, Jesus himself is the first fruits of God's kingdom harvest. God's chosen lamb. In the 22nd chapter of Genesis, at God's command, Abraham took his promised son Isaac to sacrifice him on a mountain. Isaac was unaware that he himself was to be sacrificed and asked, Behold, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? But Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. And God did. On that day, a ram with its horn stuck in a thicket was sacrificed in Isaac's place, and Isaac was set free. And 1,800 years later, God would once again provide for himself a lamb. On a cross, God's own son, the true Passover lamb, would be sacrificed for our sins. And it is we, you and I, who get to go free. But the good news doesn't end there. There is coming a day where we will see the lamb of God face to face. And we will feast with him and drink of the fruit of the vine with him as he promised. Jesus in Luke's account said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled 
in the kingdom of God. Jesus has not had communion since that last night. And the next time he has it, you and I who trust in Christ will be there. Along with what is sure to be a feast for the ages, we will worship the one who gave his body and shed his blood for us. Revelation 5 reads, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Communion with Jesus, our true Passover lamb, and communion with each other forever. That is what we observe and what we celebrate in communion. And it is what we proclaim until he comes. And there is nothing more worthy of remembering, and there is nothing more glorious to tell. Let's pray. God of all good, we bless you for the means of grace. Teach us to see in them your loving purposes and the joy and strength of our souls. You have prepared for us a feast, and though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, we cannot hesitate but must come to you in love. By the Spirit, enliven our faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While we gaze upon the emblems of our Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to forgive your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean endured your curses to set you free and bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may we rightly grasp the breadth and the length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all men that we gladly receive our Lord to be our life, our strength, our nourishment, joy, and delight. In this supper, we remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, his agony, cross, and redemption. And we receive assurance of pardon and adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish our bodies, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls. Until that day, when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen.